Hey guys, howdy. I've got to stop saying howdy, don't I? It's uh, time to move on, I think, from uh, saying that. So, good day uh, to you guys. Yeah, we've been travelling with Paul on this epic journey, his missionary journeys, and seeing how the gospel of Jesus spread from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And today we come to the final chapter of Paul's life. And uh, chapter Acts 27 to 28 we'll be looking at. And the letters of Timothy and Titus. I've got about 30 slides, so if you can't see them, it's, it's a shame. Do what you can. Um, it's incredible how Paul finishes his life. And I'm about the same age as Paul was. And I'm thinking, I want to finish my life really well like Paul finished his life. And there are many lessons for me in this uh, text, and I'm sure for you as well. So there'll be questions and a chance for comments at the end as we wrap this series up. Last week we ended in Caesarea, beautiful Caesarea, next slide where he's on trial, and uh, he appears to Caesar, uh, sorry, he appeals to Caesar and to stand trial before Caesar. And the reason he does that is because he wants to preach the gospel in Rome and to Caesar himself. So in Acts 27, Paul is on a ship heading for Rome. And that should say 27, not 28, but anyway. Now we have to realise that even though Paul is on a ship that's going to Rome where Paul will be tried by Caesar, he is not yet a condemned criminal. And he hasn't even been given a proper charge. And they're taking him to Rome because he appealed as a Roman citizen to Caesar. And so it's the job of the Roman centurion to get Paul to Rome. And the Roman centurion has other soldiers there too and other helpers. And there are also a number of prisoners who are travelling with them. So it's interesting how Paul takes charge. Um, he, he's always doing this, isn't he, in the whole story. When it, wherever he goes, he's that kind of guy he sometimes appears quite bossy, but he does take charge, even though he's not in charge. And he is a Roman citizen, and he is well-travelled, and it was um, usual for well-seasoned travellers on sea voyages to get alongside the captain and to give advice. So that was the culture of the day. And Paul certainly muscles in and gives instructions to the captain and to the centurion and to, uh, and to the whole crew, so, um, suggesting what they ought to be doing. <laughs> so it's interesting seeing Paul do that. But it needed to happen. Somebody did need to take charge. And if I was in a sinking ship, I'd like Paul to be there. Although it does get quite annoying. He uh, keeps saying, I told you so, and he's not Mr. Popular, I'm sure. Now, the problem with the voyage is that it happens too late in the year. Uh, they should have attempted it late, uh, should not have attempted it at that time. People in the ancient world knew that the Mediterranean was dangerous after mid-October, and this is already past this time. It would have been wiser to stay in Turkey, you see on the map there, or they should have stayed in Crete for the winter because it's just too dangerous to go any further. 
But they wanted to go for a reason. I think firstly the soldiers wanted to get back to Rome, see their families and to get on to the next job. And most ships that were going from the east of the Mediterranean to Rome were bringing grain, the corn supply. Grain from Egypt was absolutely vital for Rome. So successive emperors gave incentives to sea captains to get food from Egypt, which was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire, to Rome, even though it was unseasonable uh, to do that. So the ship owner or captain knew they'd get a bonus if they could bring this ship with its contents safely uh, all the way to Ostia, the port of Rome, and collect the reward that they would get for being so brave. And it was just kind of Paul's bad luck that he happened to be on a ship that was taking huge risks, I assume, to get this bonus. So they set off and they get to Crete. And Paul tells the men, chapter 27, verse 10, we're going to have trouble. We're going to sustain heavy losses, both to cargo and ship. But the centurion puts his faith in the ship owner and not Paul. And they find a little harbour called Fair Havens where it was possible to stay for the winter but it's not ideal so they try to go for the next port which was in Phoenix but it's too dangerous. Next slide. Too dangerous and A great northern wind sweeps down upon them. It was a well-known wind for that region. And they were driven before a great storm for two whole weeks. There was nothing that they could do about it. They were not able to see the sun or the stars for two weeks. They throw stuff overboard and it's just terrifying. And if you've been on a boat in a storm, let alone a storm for two weeks you'll know just how terrifying this can be. And there are 276 passengers on board. 276 people on board, Luke tells us. And people didn't have individual cabins. (laughs) This was a transport ship where they would have had to just sleep on deck as best they could It was unsanitary, Uh, it was crowded, there was no privacy at all and it would have been just miserable for two weeks and they would have ended up cold and wet, probably sick, hungry and tired and giving up hope. And it's at this point that Paul intervenes again. He tells them they should have taken his advice and stayed in Crete but he's had a vision And you can imagine them rolling their eyes as this funny man gives his advice again. But he says, no, an angel of the God I worship stood by me and said, verse 24, it's okay, Paul, you're going to crash on some island somewhere, but no lives will be lost. So take heart, says Paul, I believe what God has said. God will keep us safe. We must, however, be wrecked on some island somewhere. And so they're being driven across the sea towards what turns out to be Malta. And then on the 14th night, they begin putting soundings down and discover that they're approaching land. But they're afraid they'll crash on the rocks. 
And some of the sailors try to put down a lifeboat and escape. But Paul alerts the soldiers, saying that these men won't survive if they don't stay on the boat. And so the soldiers cut the ropes of these lifeboats. In other words, they are now trusting what Paul says. And they let down four anchors from the stern and pray for day to come. And archaeologists have figured out how this works. They didn't put all four anchors down at the same time. They put one anchor down first and to try and slow the ship down. And then um, as the, the line was about to, to break, they cut it off and then r- let it run a little while longer, then put down another anchor, jerked it slower again, cut it again, and then they would continue on, trying to keep the ship under control and away from land. And in the Mediterranean, <laughs> apparently if you, there are plenty of sequences of four anchors and then a shipwreck. It's, it's, it's quite a thing that people have discovered. And this is exactly what happens to them. And just before daylight, Paul urges everyone to eat. This food will help you survive and no one will be lost. And Paul gives thanks to God and breaks bread and gives everyone hope and urges everyone to trust in God. And then they throw all the grain overboard to lighten the ship. And when day comes, they can see in the early morning light a bay and a little sandy beach that might be somewhere where they could land. But they don't realise there's a reef and the ship sticks on the reef and starts to break apart. Now there are tales uh, from every generation of sailors, of people drowning, And even the whole company, this is actually St Paul's Bay now named, which is where the shipwrecks happened in Malta. There there are so many stories of whole companies of ships, ships drowning, even inside of land. Was that going to happen to this ship? No. The orders are given that everyone is to get into the sea and swim to shore. But first there's a terrible moment when the soldiers realise that the prisoners might escape. And it's like that Philippian jailer, if you remember. And if the prisoners escape, they'll be held responsible. So they say, why don't we kill them all now? And so for a moment it looks like Paul and the other prisoners are going to be killed just when land is in sight. But the centurion wants to save Paul. And so he says, no, let them live. And they all splash and gasp their way onto land. I love the sense of everyone being reduced to the same status in the face of this kind of event. There are wealthy people, there are merchants, there are soldiers, there are sailors and there are slaves. But they're all equal when they're out of their depth in water, grabbing hold of whatever piece of wood they can, trying to survive. And they're cold and they're wet and they're frightened. But, but Luke says they all made it to shore. And it's the land of Malta. <laughs> and Paul helps build a bonfire to warm them up. By now it's early winter, so everyone's cold and wet. And they're lighting the fire and this viper comes out and strikes Paul on the hand. And he shakes it off and doesn't feel any ill effects. 
And it's an interesting reversal because back in Galatia on their first mission trip, which we didn't look at, when he'd healed somebody, they thought he was a god. And then when they found out he wasn't a god, they wanted to stone him to death. Uh, this time, they think he's a murderer and justice has, reached, has caught up with him because he's been bitten by this snake and he's going to die. But when they see him shake the snake off into the fire with no ill effects, they change their mind and say, he must be a god. <laughs> and I think Luke intends that just to be hilarious. And then they meet one of the leading men of the island, somebody called Publius, I don't know how to pronounce that, whose father is very sick and Paul lays hands on his father and he's healed and then Paul heals many of the people from Malta. And you can imagine all the people who've been on the boat seeing Paul heal all these people thinking, why didn't you pray right at the beginning and ask God to make the storm quiet? If you've got that power with God where he answers your prayer, why didn't God stop the storm in the first place? And Acts is never a story that says we just pray and it automatically happens. Uh, Sometimes it does, but often it doesn't. And it just doesn't work like that with God, which doesn't mean we give up praying, but it does mean we have to be patient and just keep on praying. But as a result of what happens, all is well. (laughs) And people in Malta think Paul is this extraordinary guy that they need and they want around. So for three months they provide all the needs for the whole crew. Then, after three months, in the early spring, they get on a ship and sail via Sicily to the Italian coast and then on to Rome. There are Christians in Rome already. Paul, remember, has sent his letter to the Romans three years before this. And they hear that Paul is coming and they come to meet him as he heads to Rome. Doing with Paul what citizens did to a Roman emperor or to a prince who was coming into a great city. They came out of the city for miles and met Paul and escorted him into the city as a mark of great honour. And I can only imagine what the centurion thought of that. Paul saw it as a sign of God's grace and blessing. And then finally, and that's the Appian Way today, that Paul walked along from the southern port south of Rome because presumably the port of Rome was too busy so sometimes they went to the southern port and walked into Rome on the Appian Way. And in Rome, Paul is able to rent accommodation for himself. He has to have a soldier with him and he has to keep a chain on. And I don't mean jewellery. Yeah, so he's still in chains with a soldier there. But he does have a measure of freedom as he waits for his trial with Caesar. And he's able to bring people to his house. And we can imagine Paul's anticipation. What will happen when I stand before Caesar? And will Caesar say, who is this strange, crazy uh, Jewish prisoner, very uppity? very articulate and very famous. Who is he? And you can imagine Paul excited to meet Caesar. 
But that isn't the thing that Paul is most concerned with when he gets to Rome. First, he wants to see the local Jewish leadership. Presumably, he has made contact with the Christian churches already, but Luke doesn't mention that. Why does Paul focus on the Jewish community as his first priority? The answer might be the mounting tension that I mentioned last week in Jerusalem between the Romans and the Jews, which will ultimately mean the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. There will be a war from 66 AD to 70 AD and Jerusalem will be sacked. And that's, that tension is building up in the Middle East, in Jerusalem. And there's always a danger that someone will come from the Middle East, perhaps a disgruntled Jew like Paul, and tell Caesar to just end it all, go in there with the army and destroy the Jews. And I think Paul wants to make sure that people know that he is not against his own nation. He says the same kind of thing in Romans chapter 11. And so I think Paul is very anxious, prayerfully anxious, that they know that he is a loyal Jew and that he will not betray them. So he calls for the leaders of the Jewish community in Rome. And amazingly, they come. And he says, look, I'm not anti-Jew. Jesus is our Messiah, Israel's Messiah. The prophets and the law have prophesied the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. He is our hope. The hopes, hope of Israel is in him. He is our Messiah, our Lord, our champion. He is our God, come in the flesh. And they say, we haven't heard any ill reports about you, Paul. And they welcome him. And then a large number of Jews comes to Paul in his room in Rome. And Paul tells each group about the crucified and risen Jesus. Explaining from the law of Moses and the prophets that Jesus had to come. And as always, synagogue after synagogue we've seen, some Jews believe, many don't. And so Paul warns those who don't believe with the words of Isaiah, echoing what he said already in Romans chapter 11. So in Acts 28, 28, he says, Let it be known to you that this salvation from God has now been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen, even if you don't. And then... Acts ends. It ends. From our point of view, way too soon. Paul stays under house arrest in Rome for two years. It's another two-year period for Paul in chains, just like in Caesarea. And if archaeologists are right, we, we, they've discovered where Paul was. Um, the Palazzo Doria Pamphili, pictured here. Uh, underneath that, quite close to the forum in the old part of the ancient city of Rome. Archaeologists have dug down to a room which they believe is a place where a very important, very early Christian was kept in the first century. You want to go to the next slide? You can see the, the red up there. 
And this is the Roman Forum here. Next slide. Roman Forum, centre of Rome, Triumphal Arch, etc. Where Paul's house may well have been. And he could welcome people there and talk to them. And Luke says, in his closing verse, he could announce the kingdom of God and the lordship of Jesus the Messiah openly and unhindered. In other words, mission accomplished. Paul now is in the centre of the world proclaiming Jesus openly and unhindered. And that's the final verse of Acts. Some people think that Acts ends at this point because Acts was written as a document to use before Caesar to explain to the Romans in general and Caesar in particular what this Jesus movement is all about. (laughs) And here's what Paul himself is all about. And in Acts, Luke is constantly saying that this official said that this man should be set free and that Roman official said that he was innocent and this Roman official says he's not guilty of the charges. And please, Caesar, you too agree with all of these Roman officials and set Paul free. So that might well have been the point of the book of Acts. I'm sure it's more than that. Some people believe Luke wrote Acts much later, but that doesn't make any sense to me. If Luke Luke wrote Acts later, this is Luke, why didn't he tell us what happened to Paul when he came before Caesar and, and beyond that? It seems to me that Luke must have written Acts before Paul saw Caesar. So what happened next? I think it's quite possible and quite likely that after two years, Paul did have a hearing with Caesar and that he was released and that he went to Spain. Some believe that after two years, Paul faced Caesar and then was executed. But there's a letter by Clement. Clement was Bishop of Rome towards the end of the first century. Clement says that Paul reached the limits of the West. So Clement was there in Rome as Bishop right through the last decades of the first century, he must have heard plenty of stories about Paul and likely met Paul himself. And if anyone knew what happened to Paul, Clement did. And the the limits of the West has to mean Spain. So I think Paul did cross the sea and that he went to the ancient city of Tarraco and maybe further west, next slide, and announced Jesus as Lord and the kingdom of God in Spain before coming back. Did he then go to the east? He said to the elders in Ephesus, do you remember last week, that he'd never be coming back that way. He said uh, in writing to the Romans that he had no more work to do in the east. But as we know in 2 Corinthians, Paul was quite capable of saying, well, that was then, this is now. And these plans carry with them uh, if the Lord wills. (laughs) 
And if you look at the clues that Paul gives us in the pastoral letters 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, I think Paul probably did go and revisit the churches in Macedonia. And he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus from there. And then back in Rome, he went uh, for a second imprisonment. And he's facing trial and he writes his second letter to, to Timothy in prison in Rome again and then is executed. We don't know why Paul is in prison again. Probably he was picked up in AD 64 when the great fire of Rome happened and Nero persecuted the Christians as a way of shifting blame from himself. Partly because many Christians lived on the other side of the river to where the fire was. The fire was in the main part of Rome. Most Christians and Jews lived across the river. And because they weren't affected by the fire, Nero blamed them. So Nero, pictured here, did some vicious and horrible things to the Christians, pouring tar on them and lighting them as lamps for his parties, etc. But Paul, as a citizen, would not have been killed by crucifixion. He wouldn't have been burned at the stake either. He would have been killed by an executioner's sword and beheaded. So here is the timeline of these final years of Paul's life. Till his death and then the Jerusalem war, the Jewish war and the fall of Jerusalem. So let's look as we close at his last three letters to Timothy and Titus. One or two Timothy and Titus are called pastoral letters because they're written to pastors. <laughs> and Paul is passing on the bat- baton of gospel ministry to the next generation of leaders. First Timothy is full of advice to Timothy about how to run the church in Ephesus. He must give himself to that work, urging mutual love, resisting false or diluted teaching, being constantly in prayer and being careful to select the right leaders who will teach the gospel in the generations to come. Titus is similar to Timothy, 1 Timothy. And in first, as in 1 Timothy, it's important to appoint the right kind of church leaders who will teach the gospel in days to come and not be distracted by silly myths and disputes. And part of the point for the whole Christian movement is to be family, says Paul to Titus. A family that engages good creative deeds, which Paul mentions again and again. We want to be making our street and our village and our town a better place. This will help the gospel impact the world, says Paul. And then in his second letter to Timothy, written from prison in Rome, Paul knows his time is near and he reflects on his past work and celebrates the gospel, reflecting that though he's in chains, the gospel is not in chains. And he wants Timothy to guard the gospel and to pass on the gospel to reliable men who will be able to teach others. He says bad times will come and false teachers too and people will eagerly listen to what their itching ears want to hear 
But Timothy must maintain the example and teaching of the gospel and preach the word in season and out of season and do the work of an evangelist. This was the passage that I chose to preach on in my graduating sermon at Theological College in 1988. And this is the verse that has given me my purpose in life. Preach the word in season and out of season all the time. And do the work of an evangelist. And I said in that sermon that I thought the work of an evangelist was to plant churches. And I thought I'd be killed for that by the examiners. But they all agreed with me. I was amazed. All these New Testament scholars said, yes, Paul means to Timothy, plant churches. And I said, yep, that's what I want to do. Wow. So there there you go. And what I get from looking out over this last section of Paul's life is just his absolute commitment to the gospel. He's irrepressible. You can't hold him down because of the power of God. He trusts in God. His sheer energy is incredible. His focus. He wants to see everybody hear the gospel about Jesus. And he wants that to continue in the generations to come, right through the remaining centuries of time in this world. That's his passion. That's his goal. And he wants to receive the reward that God will give him in the life to come. And for me, that's just incredibly, incredibly encouraging. I want my life to be the same although I don't even pretend to be anywhere near as determined and irrepressible as Paul. Chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. My departure time has arrived. He knows he's going to die. I have fought the good fight. I have completed the course. I have kept the faith. What do I still have to look for? The crown of righteousness. The Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me, it to me as my reward on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Amen.